episode is sponsored by Cytiva. Cytiva, now with the Life Sciences Business from Paul, is a global provider of the technologies, services, and expertise that researchers and biopharma companies need to bring transformative medicines from discovery to delivery. Learn more at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com. You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Ayla Ellison. The digital health and health tech sectors had a tough year in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, navigating through a turbulent hype cycle. Startups witnessed a significant slump in funding and public markets didn't quite live up to expectations. However, amid these market trials, 2023 revealed some silver linings for the sector. Joining us today are Sophia Guerra and Steve Kraus from Bessemer Venture Partners. They sat down with Heather Landy from Fierce Healthcare to discuss the industry's performance, unraveling the factors that contributed to its current state. They share what it will take to get health tech out of its current market lull and explore whether we'll see a rebound in IPOs this year. They also shared their big predictions for health tech this year, like who is making it to the other side and who will be left in the digital health graveyard. Here they are. Sophia and Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really excited to chat with you about the health tech market, looking back at 2023 and looking ahead to 2024. Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. In a recent report, you both cautioned the industry to not mistake a cyclical market correction and performance of a group of companies as a sign of the industry's long-term potential. So obviously, you're still very bullish on health tech and digital health. So what are the silver linings that you see in the sectors right now? In the report, what we tried to distinguish, because we, we are, as you say, we, we're going through a tough time across the economy when it comes to the market, that not just health tech, but broadly, as we point out in the digital health sector, obviously our sector has taken its lumps. But I, I like to pull up and say, one is look how far we've come, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But then let's just look at the macroeconomic environment and, and this hype cycle. And I think really there are two types of bubbles, the market bubbles. One is where the assets are mispriced and they aren't good assets. So that's the really bad bubble, I'll call it. And and we went through a really bad bubble about 20 years ago, the dot-com era. Most A lot of people will remember that when you had companies like pets.com, not to pick on them, but frankly, and a bunch of other businesses were, were at the start of the internet economy. Basically, the whole math was based on eyeballs. There fundamentally wasn't an underlying P&L that really worked for a lot of those businesses. And... So those businesses were not great assets and those assets were wildly mispriced. So that's a really bad bubble. What we're going through right now, I think, is a normal innovation bubble, which is, and digital health went through this, as you pointed to recently, the the assets were mispriced. There's no doubt about that. They were mispriced in the public sector. They were mispriced in the private sector. Frankly, they were mispriced outside of health tech, but the health tech assets themselves were mispriced. But those assets, and Sophie and I know, because we've looked at now 300 plus companies, we've looked longitudinally, we've seen a bunch of companies that are at scale and look deeply at their P&Ls as we do in our reports. 
they're good assets. Not all of them. There were some that were bad assets, and those obviously make the headlines. But on large, on mass, lots of great companies in both the public portfolios that are out there, as well as a lot of companies that are going to get public eventually that we've seen in, uh, that are still private. And so I think it's a it's a bubble for sure. And no bubble is pleasant because ultimately it pops and bursts. And that's what we're going through right now. But it's not a really bad bubble because the underlying assets themselves are good assets. And so I think at its core, that's why we're optimistic is once we come out of this macroeconomic downturn, we fundamentally believe at Bessemer after staring at the data that a lot of these companies will ultimately get public, the private ones, and and trade well and perform well. And a bunch of the public ones, which are being, frankly, are downtrodden right now, actually are good businesses and ultimately will accrete value for shareholders. So that's the, that's the first level view that we take on it. To add a few more thoughts to that on the silver lining side, I think the macro like issues that were exhibited during the pandemic or the cracks that showed in our system have become even more evident in the last few years. One on rising costs, the ability to have access to the right care and, and how do we kind of engage consumers in, in their health is, is just more necessary than before. Those are not going away. And I think that COVID really put that at the center. And then how do we think about, we use technology and new business models and, and payment models to really change the way the status quo and how we deliver care. Even, I mean, you you see the companies that scaled and were public that have been acquired in the last 24 months. We estimated over 25% of the market cap in the public market was acquired by incumbents. That's a great sign um, that delivering care in, in better and lower cost of care sites is necessary and incumbents have woken up to that. I think we're going to continue to see a lot of businesses that are tackling those kind of big the triple aim to deliver better, better care still going to happen in the private market. The other other silver lining that we see is health tech is very young in in its kind of cycle. We say we could point to the High Tech Act, the ACA, and a lot of other regulation and technology triggers to be kind of the the birth or the origins of, of health tech. And that, that was only 10 years ago. So we've only really seen one cohort of companies really go public and scale. There's a ton in the private market under um, the tip of the iceberg that are great companies that we think are going to be that next generation or cohort of companies that will kind of propel um, the industry forward on the, on the public side as well. Yeah, great points. So how would you describe the sector's 2023 performance and which subsectors were the most resilient? I mean, the performance has been poor, right? I don't think you can sugarcoat that. Again, it's got to be in the picture of almost every single growth and venture-backed innovation sector has been poor because, frankly, when the markets are in a downturn, the public market buyers aren't looking to take on more risk. <laughs> They're looking for value-based stocks, and that's not what we do. So, but, so I just say I'd be honest about that. I think what gets us out of this, I'm, I'm optimistic about a lot of sectors, uh, honestly, but the three that I would point to are, are the following. One is, I think you, you pointed to it right at the outset, COVID, while tremendously tragic for so many people and for our country, it, it did push innovation forward. Like I say, it basically advanced our, our, our sector two decades in, in one year, right? Because what folks realize is a lot of what can be done in healthcare or a good part of it can be done virtually. And frankly, our sector has always been one of the slowest to adopt innovation. And so the fact that a lot of care was delivered by telemedicine uh, across not just primary care, but frankly, specialty care, home-based care, large sectors of the healthcare economy 
was a huge step forward. And we know because we've looked at the data of the private companies, there are a lot of really interesting, high growth, efficient, attractive looking digital health enabled providers. We have some in our portfolio, Hinge Health, Headspace Health. Oshi Health in the GI space, gastrointestinal care, hinges in musculoskeletal care and headspaces in mental health. Those companies, when the markets turn, are going to be continue to scale. They're already, they're scaling now and are going to be attractive opportunities for, for investors. So that's number one is sort of just the whole digital enablement of our, of our economy, which is one 33% of the GDP. The second I'd say is value-based care, essentially the idea that we're moving to more of a value-based orientation rather than a fee-for-service payment orientation in our economy. By the way, digital health enables that because it keeps people who don't need to be in the hospital out of the hospital and allows preventative care and things like that in a much more digitally enabled way. That's a second big, big macro shift. I mean, you're talking about moving large dollars to value-based movements. So that's the second point. And then I'd say the third, which is earlier, is the whole AI enablement of our economy. These large language models and the advances that have been made in the last couple of years what is AI good for? It's good for automating what are laborious, inefficient tasks make, that are manual and making those more like software in their orientation. And healthcare is the most inefficient, laborious industry in our economy. Still today, 70% of medical communications are done via fax, which is kind of crazy. I don't know when the last time you used a fax was, but I haven't used it in probably five to 10 years, but it's still being used in healthcare and AI can enable a lot of that paperwork. But frankly, it can also help with things like clinical decision support. And so we're really optimistic about what AI is going to do for the healthcare economy. And that'll take a while to play out because we're still in the early days. I think that's 10 years forward. Those are going to be the IPOs uh, of the future for digital health. But AI is meant to be used in healthcare, if, if, if no other industry. And so we're really excited about the future there as well. And since you touched on IPOs, I mean, we obviously saw a freeze on the IPO market. Will we see that start to thaw next year? From what the bankers are telling us, that we could expect to see some digital health IPOs in kind of mid to late 2024. To me, it all depends on how the, the crop of, of software IPOs that, that target other industries will trade. And I think those are expected to be more in the first half of 24. And so to me, it's like, how do those crops of, of traditional SaaS cloud computing companies trade, maybe some consumer companies trade when they get out? And then if they do well, which we all hope they do, then I think you'll see digital health be a sector where there'll be a, a, a bunch of new IPOs. Yeah, I agree. And also looking at just macro environment on inflation and interest rates. I mean, most recently, there the, the public market has been kind of performing a lot better, but we still need to see some of those IPOs on other sectors go out and, and kind of perform well before we think health tech will be there. As an example, I think we were all waiting for Waystar to go public and that got delayed. We saw some IPOs on the uh, cloud side with Clavio and others that didn't perform as, as investors were expecting. So yeah, much weighted on that back half of, of next year is where we're, we're optimistic. So what will it take to get health tech out of this market lull? And, and what will those successful companies look like? We refer in our report to kind of Phoenix is rising from the ashes or how do we get out of this kind of trough of disillusionment? And I think that we, we have a few characteristics on the qualitative side as well as quantitatively how we're thinking about metrics and KPIs that are the companies that kind of are the best performing in the sector. But at a high level, in an environment where payers, providers, pharma, and patients are kind of have a really high bar in how they're using technology, I think one, solving a hair on fire problem that is immediately captures value to to the user is, is very critical. We talk about kind of financial ROI or like generating revenue for 
for a provider or a payer, for example, and like how immediate is that impact and, and how you're able to, to prove attribution of, of the solution really solving that problem. The second is just really underlying great unit economics and efficient businesses. I think that in an environment where cost of capital is high, there's a huge emphasis in, in companies that have really sound unit economics in, in the early stages and especially as they scale, showing that improvement and then how, how efficient they are at scaling and, and investing in their R&D and sales and marketing, for example, to see kind of that top line growth. So are there any lessons that can be learned as we go into 2024? I think the biggest lesson, which is is already learned, I think, by most entrepreneurs in, in the economy is that we just went through a period where growth at all costs made made sense because one, the markets, both the private markets and the public ma- markets valued growth over efficiency per se. And two, cost of capital, because the reason Sophia stated was was low. And so companies would raise around on a high valuation multiple and then could raise around a year later on either the similar or even better valuation multiple and they'd have growth which was being valued by that multiple so just the 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 math when you're an investor and when you're actually a an owner which all the entrepreneurs and employees are of these businesses we back it made sense to grow that that equation has changed completely it changed about two years ago and so the the really uh almost all, all entrepreneurs get that, right? Because they're they need capital to continue to, to fund their businesses. And so I think that the math has changed to more efficient growth as we point to in our report. And so hopefully the lesson learned moving forward is you never know what the markets are going to do because we don't all have a crystal ball. They're almost a beast into themselves. And so I think really not just foc- focusing on growth, but really on efficient growth, I hope is the lesson that is carried forward by entrepreneurs this generation when they start their next company and markets are hot again because markets will come back. We know that. I mean, I guess this time could be different and they stay down for for years or decades. I doubt it. They're going to come back. And so hopefully next time people will like you know, use the efficiency, efficient growth metric rather than growth at all costs, because when they turn, you want to be you don't want to have to make those cuts when it happens. You want to have already been managing your business so that you're best position when things go up and then they go down. A few other things to add for, for 24, things that we're, we're looking forward to seeing more, like taking advantage of all of the great technology developments with AI. And then the second that we've been thinking a lot about is like, how do you get differentiated distribution in, a, in an environment where selling to payers is hard, selling to providers and to pharma? It, it's just... The, there's been kind of an oversaturation in certain channels and how do companies and founders that are incredibly smart and resilient figure out ways to do this in a differentiated way. We're seeing companies scale efficiently and we're really excited to learn more about those business models and, and back some of those. Let's talk a little bit more about where we're, where the industry is going now that we kind of touched on where we've been. What are some other predictions that you have? for the coming year. We're very excited about how we use AI in different in different ways or, or, or new business models or areas that can be tapped with uh, software that weren't able to be done before. How do we make all of the tech-enabled services in our industry n- not just care delivery and, and bolster or give kind of more power to clinicians to do better work, but also on the B2B side, a lot of kind of payments and revenue cycle management or back office functions that have a lot of idiosyncratic processes that use a lot of people. How do we automate and empower those folks to be more productive? On the consumer side, we've seen 
a ton of interest on longevity and kind of a renewed interest in preventative care models driven by consumer demand, like Blue uh, Blue Zones or Outlive by Peter Atia and others. So excited to really think about how do we develop a uh, or see companies and, and consumers get more involved in personal health and, and managing that personal health in a longitudinal way. Last, I think on the value-based care side and care delivery, we're continuing to see kind of the next wave of value-based care businesses be born in areas that are specialty specifically, where there's high met need and there's structural changes with um, high cost drugs or diagnostics coming to market. An example of that is with new Alzheimer's drugs or GLP-1s in the cardiometabolic space. And we're excited to see some of the tech-enabled uh, services wrap around uh, alongside that that will help with the engagement and distribution of those. On that point, if you if you think about one of the areas that I touched upon that we're excited about, which is value-based care, value-based care is is a policy change that has been pushed by different administrations, Obama, Trump, Biden. So it's 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 in essence nonpartisan or has support from both sides of the aisle. And and frankly, now you see commercial payers who often follow Medicare and Medicaid really push this type of payment reform forward. And I think where it started and where we saw a lot of successful IPOs and exits in the last crop of healthcare leaders was primary care, right? Primary care is often the tip of the spear when it comes to managing care. And so it made sense to start there. You have companies like Oak Street Health or Privia or Agilon, or in the private markets, Alidade. You can go down the list, lots of successful companies, ChenMed, et cetera, et cetera, that have created a lot of value for the shareholders and frankly have moved the, the system forward by, by targeting primary care as, as the tip of the spear for value-based care. The next act, the next evolution, which is happening today in the private markets, is moving that risk, moving the value-based care payment to specialty care providers, because frankly, that's where all the cost is, right? And so you've seen a crop of companies in the nephrology space, kidney care, managing kidney care more, more proactively so people don't crash in the dialysis center, which is really high cost. We're starting to see it in oncology. We have a company in the cardiology space, and there's a number of others. We have a company called US Health Partners that is trying to manage cardiology patients in a value-based care way. In GI, we have a company, Oshi Health, that's doing the same thing. So I think you're going to see it, the, the big cost centers when it comes to ology, specialty areas, that's where I think we're going to see a bunch of really successful private and then public companies come forward. And frankly, it makes sense. It's in totally alignment. It's a win-win-win for everybody if those companies can be successful, both in terms of managing costs, but also managing the patient populations in a real proactive, preventative, high-quality way where we get better outcomes for the system. During this past year, we heard a lot of hype and a lot of talk about generative AI. Uh, what are your thoughts on what we're going to see with generative AI in healthcare next year? I can tell you, like in the last year, I see in in our in our company sales pipelines and in talking to the strategics and the incumbents, like it's a totally different attitude. They are actually seeking out these technologies. They are buying these technologies. They're spending large dollars on these technologies because they realize they know because they live it day to day. What I said earlier, which is like. Our system is massively inefficient and very laborious. And especially if you take like a health system that is single digit margins or losing lots of money, as we've seen in the press these days, they need to strip out cost. And so they are buying this stuff, I can tell you. And they and the beautiful thing is it's basically turning services into software. So it's almost like they're just replacing things that are not automated with, with automation. It just makes sense. It's happening. I can tell you it'll continue to happen. Of course, 
it takes a long time to make sure that they do a security review and they get comfortable with it and they, they have to work on how that gets implemented and integrated into all their other systems. So some of the actual time to roll out takes a while, but the, the purchasing behavior is dramatically different than 10 years ago. Yeah, one one quick example to add to you, I mean, it's definitely top of mind for all of strategic. So thinking about what their generative AI strategy is, but there's also a huge focus on how how are they going to track compliance, security, and data governance, and the the companies that are showing real ROI and impact from past partnerships are really their ability to sell and kind of hit the ground running with a lot of these strategics is is going really well. Obviously, we'll see a lot of a lot of early stage companies pilot with a lot of um, institutions, but really focus on proving outcomes and real value from the get-go is going to be very important for the rest of the of the strategics to continue to buy and, and use these. An example on a portfolio company is a company called Smarter DX that sells to providers and they have like very clear attribution of how they provide value to to the provider of the health system. And that's been enabled them to have referenceable customers that they can go to and kind of show and, and grow their pipeline and, and sales um, because they're able to prove that very clear ROI early on. It doesn't matter if it's the type of model or how they're building this. They're like building the whole data security in, in model comprehensively. So that's helped them on their go-to-market side. And we continue to be excited about companies that are proving those real outcomes to to their users as kind of a high high priority. Yeah, those are all really great points. Uh, well, Stephen, Sophia, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. It was uh, really exciting and interesting to hear your take on the health tech sector. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Heather. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at FierceHealthcare.com. Look for podcasts. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.